Let me start with the obvious. The story of Jephthah and his daughter is a disturbing tale. For centuries it has drawn wonderment from commentators, from ancient rabbis, from early Christians, medieval monks, and Protestant reformers alike. I know you'll have gleaned as much from what we've just read, but let me begin by putting the story of Jephthah in its larger context. First of all, the book of Judges reads like the best of times and the worst of times. Unfortunately, about 20% is the best of times, and the rest, 80%, is all the worst of times. In the sermon series so far, we've heard encouraging tales about Othniel, Deborah, and Gideon, who were all unlikely figures raised up by God to deliver Israel from oppressors and to rule and judge the people. But Judges is also chock-a-block with the worst of times, not least of all, the refrain for which the book is famous. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's almost a chorus. It repeats eight times in Judges. It usually signals the sin of worshiping false gods, for which cause God repeatedly gives Israel into the hands of their enemies once again. That's how we get into the story of Jephthah, one more unlikely judge raised up to deliver Israel from the Ammonites. We've seen the pattern before. We've also seen the Spirit of God come upon Othniel and Gideon, just as we saw the Spirit fall upon Samson last week. But shortly after the Spirit came upon Jephthah, something rather odd occurred. He made a strange and controversial vow that if the Lord gave him victory over the Ammonites, he would offer up in sacrifice whoever or whatever would first greet him when he returned. This was truly a rash promise, and you know how it ends. His daughter, his only child, Truly, his only begotten, she's the one who comes dancing out to welcome Daddy home. And in a flash, what could have been a predictable action movie becomes genuine high tragedy. In grief, Jephthah blames her for this catastrophe, and yet she is not perturbed. Instead, she takes him to school and says, Nevertheless, Daddy, promises to God must be kept and the Father's vow is fulfilled. Judges 11 raises far more questions than it answers. I want to ponder the meaning of this text with you today by, first of all, giving voice to some of these questions, some of which you may already have in mind, and then I want to sketch some of the ways that these painful questions might be answered. The questions and answers naturally fall into three groups because we want to pay attention not only to Jephthah, but also, in turn, to his daughter. But, of course, there's a third character in this tragedy, God. Jephthah acted seemingly at the impulse of the Spirit of God, and inquiring minds want to know, what in the world was God up to in this story? So, to begin with Jephthah, what was he thinking when he made this vow? I mean, there's a score of Bible texts from Leviticus to Chronicles on through the Psalms into the later prophets that positively rant against any Israelite who ever dared to sacrifice son or daughter. It was an abomination to the Lord. Was he really looking for a human sacrifice? 
Some have wondered if he'd hoped one of his sheep might come trotting out to say hello. But most people know that sheep are generally not so affiliative. In any case, how could this have happened if the Spirit of the Lord was really upon him? Or why didn't somebody stop him? At the same time, we need to remember a couple of things. For instance, there are some close parallels to this sacrifice. For example, in Genesis 22, remember, Abraham took Isaac to Mount Moriah to become a burnt offering, but at the last minute, God intervened. In 1 Samuel 14, Saul vows to kill any of his soldiers who ate anything until the Philistines were crushed. But his own son Jonathan didn't know this and ate some honey. But the people intervened in this case, and Jonathan lived. So why did this case turn out so badly? Was Jephthah expecting God to intervene, perhaps, at the last minute, as with Abraham and Isaac? You need to know that these aren't just my questions. These exact questions go all the way back to the earliest rabbis and to the earliest Christians. And these questions never go out of style, not least because they're so hard to answer. But if we turn to the daughter, there's another set of questions that might seem, at least initially, as more modern. These are some objections that have been raised, especially in the last 50 years, by feminist Bible interpreters, and these are rather piercing questions. Back in 1984, Phyllis Tribble published a book entitled Texts of Terror, which had chapters on Hagar and on Jephthah's daughter, among others, in which she asked how we should read such utterly sad stories as these. But Phyllis Tribble's book also generated controversy because each of these four chapters was prefaced with a pen and ink sketch of a gravestone complete with an epitaph. For Hagar, she quoted the description of God's suffering servant in Isaiah 53, phrases that are later applied to the crucified Jesus, who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. For her chapter on Jephthah's daughter, she quoted the words from Psalm 22 that Jesus uttered from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the reviewers of this book, actually, I need to correct that, the male reviewers of this book were bothered by these unexpected sketches and the startling comparison of what these Old Testament women suffered to what Jesus suffered. But the women scholars who reviewed the, book, the same book found these graphic comparisons immensely moving, as do I. Well, beginning with Phyllis Tribble, then, it has been a hallmark of feminist interpretation to read the Bible closely, but also while bearing in mind what the experience of these biblical women might have been, and even how the text itself might have been stacked against them. We've already raised one question along this line. Why was Jephthah's daughter sacrificed when both Isaac and Jonathan, Abraham's son and Saul's son, they escaped with their lives? Does this suggest that daughters are expendable in a way that sons are not? 
These writers also wonder, of course, why didn't the daughter just resist or run away? Why didn't she call out her father for his homicidal intent, for this lethal abuse of her? These are hard questions, but they're not irrelevant. Feminist writers also point out the travesty that while it's Jephthah who made the rash vow, it's his daughter who ends up losing her life. She's the one who pays for her father's mistake. So how is it fair that he blames her? Alas, my daughter, he says, you've brought me very low. You've become the cause of great trouble to me. This looks way too much like blaming the victim as if it were the daughter's fault for greeting her father. Seriously? Seriously? Well, when we turn our questioning minds towards God in this story, arguably it gets maybe even worse. See, when we read this story, we instantly know something went wrong here. Something's wrong with this plot. So why doesn't the Bible, as God's own word to God's own people, why doesn't it, the Bible at least say something like that? Why isn't there even a tiny little adverb in verse 30 so that it would read, and Jephthah stupidly made a vow to the Lord? (laughs) Jephthah disobediently made a vow to the Lord. But in this chapter, the Bible is as silent as a stone. The Bible seems like a deer caught in its headlights, frozen, unable to say yea or nay. And doesn't it make it even harder, these feminist readers ask, that alongside the silence of the Bible in Judges itself, Hebrews 11 has the gall to trot out Jephthah as a model of faith. What about his courageous daughter? What in the world is the Bible up to in this story? And where in the world is that God of deliverance? Well, you know, were I to stick solely to Scripture here, we'd just about be done now because the Bible's pretty much silent about all these questions. So what do we do when the Bible is silent? To be sure, the Bible does add some niceties here, such as the fact that Jephthah's daughter had a circle of close girlfriends who mourned with her for two months' time, lamenting her loss of life and her future. And the chapter also records that she was remembered and lamented in perpetuity by the daughters of Israel, though, truth to tell, there's no reference anywhere in the Bible to such a commemoration. So one of the most poignant questions raised by feminists is simply this. Why has the daughter been forgotten? And why has the church been so silent about her? Isn't it amazing how silence can become a problem? Arguably, though, it's the silence of Scripture, the silence of God, that troubles us most of all. What do we do when God's Word raises deeply disturbing problems, and then it just moves on, nothing to see here, moves on without comment? Well, at this point, I'm going to make a move that you might think is rather unprotestant of me. In my search for some answers, I am not going to stick solely to Scripture. You might not have noticed, but we are only four days from October 31st, which is not only Halloween, but it's also Reformation Day, the day when children dress up like Martin Luther and go nailing things on your door. (laughs) 
at least in my neighborhood. <laughs> Reformation Day is the 502nd anniversary of when Luther posted those 95 theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, back in 1517. And so that makes today officially Reformation Sunday, and it's appropriate that I insert a lesson about the Reformation at this point. I've got one. That's my day job. Here's the lesson. Even though we Protestants like to believe that Luther and Calvin sought to reform the church by invoking the teachings of Scripture alone, that is not quite true. For Luther and Calvin, the Bible is indeed the preeminent authority, but they also believe that the Bible only makes sense if we read it in dialogue with the whole church throughout the centuries, especially the early church. In other words, we should worry a bit if we come up with a way to interpret the Bible that is unbelievably clever, because in all probability, we will have substituted our cleverness for God's enduring truth. Heretics are often the cleverest people of all. They're notorious for rejecting what the church has most reliably affirmed through the centuries. So what might that mean for Judges 11? Well, I think it means that even though the Bible leaves us hanging with regard to Jephthah's vow and his daughter's fate, the church through the centuries has had a great deal to say, and despite our Protestant fondness for believing that the Bible outranks the church, when the Bible is silent on a pressing issue, the church simply has to speak. So, what has the church said about Jephthah and his daughter? In brief, quite a bit. In preparation for this sermon, well, actually, in preparation for two, book, two books I wrote some years ago, um, <laughs> in order to prepare for this sermon, <laughs> I surveyed around 65 ancient and later Christian writers on this text. I found that they were wiser, more compassionate, and even more modern in their sensibilities than I ever would have believed if I hadn't read them for myself. So I want to share with you something of what I regard as the voice of the Spirit speaking through the church of the past. Starting on the question of Jephthah's behavior, Protestant reformers like Luther and Calvin and many, many others are especially provoked by his rash vow. It's important to note that for most of human history, Vows that invoke the name of God have been regarded as virtually unbreakable. To name God as your witness is, in effect, to ask God to punish you if you break your promise. You can see this in old courtroom dramas, you know, like Perry Mason or something, when witnesses swear on the Bible to tell the truth. It's a big deal. Traditional commentators uh, took vows like this extremely seriously, probably more so than we do. But the Reformation writers in particular argued that there are some things, there are some things that are simply not lawful to vow. And this is the lesson that they draw from Jephthah, that no father, no mother has the right to make a vow like this that so endangers the child's life. Luther, in particular, argues that Jephthah's daughter should have been released from her father's vow, just as Jonathan was from Saul's vow. That's the exact comparison that feminists will make 450 years after Luther. But many of these early Protestant interpreters are also angry with Jephthah. His vow was cruel. 
It was impious. No claim of ignorance can possibly excuse him for what he did. These same Reformation commentators have much to say about Jephthah's daughter, too. They admire her obedience and even find elements of nobility in her. They argue, too, though, that she could have repudiated her father's vow because the vow was unlawful. One writer actually commends the annual remembrance that is mentioned in Judges for its value as an ongoing warning to parents, lest they make foolish vows like this one, or lest they overextend their authority. An early Puritan writer, however, uh, anticipates some of our modern worries in yet another way. Uh, In 1615, in his his 68th sermon on Judges of a series of 103, and I'm so glad Matt is not here to hear that. (laughs) The Puritan Richard Rogers wondered long about Jephthah and his daughter, and he boldly asserted that even though Jephthah's daughter is not named in Hebrews 11, she is surely to be born in mind when verse 34 collectively praises those who by faith grew strong. In effect, Rogers ranks her among the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, even though we don't see her name there. Did I mention that Rogers was an early Presbyterian? He was. Now, in all fairness, we should also know that some monastic writers were also deeply moved by Jephthah's daughter and what she suffered. In the 15th century, a Carthusian monk named Dennis wrote a massive commentary on the entire Bible, and his empathy for Jephthah's daughter is astonishing. For Dennis, the daughter's sufferings foreshadow none other than Christ himself. He cites several texts to make his point including Romans 8.32, that God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, as well as descriptions of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who was stricken for our transgressions. This is the exact motif that Phyllis Tribble will invoke five centuries later. Dennis, I think, is doing two things here. On the one hand, he's filled with empathy for the daughter's innocent suffering, and in that, surely he is a model for us as well. On the other hand, he sees no way to understand her puzzling fate except somehow to weave her story together with the story of Jesus Christ, whose sufferings are the source for our healing and hers as well. Finally, what about God and the strange silence where no word of rebuke or hope ever comes from above? Well, here I want to call on Origen of Alexandria, who was a Christian teacher back in the early 3rd century. His sermons on judges don't survive, but he makes this passing reference to Jephthah's daughter in John chapter 1, where Jesus is described as the Lamb of God whose death will take away the sins of the world. Origen goes on to explain how sacrifices in general work, and that leads him to talk about the meaning of Christian martyrdom. What does it mean to be a martyr? In Origen's day, persecutions were far from unknown. His own father was executed for his faith under the emperor Septimus Severus. But, Origen asks, why does God let his people be killed like this? Why does God put up with people treating his people like this? His answer is blunt but hopeful. Martyrdom does make God look cruel. 
but Origen also insists that the death of faithful Christians does something. It contributes somehow to the defeat of evil in this world. And that is the moment, the precise moment, where he gives a nod toward Jephthah's daughter. Her death, he says, looks senseless and cruel, but it was not. We cannot see how, he says, but by faith we can believe and we can confess that her sacrifice was also a martyrdom of sorts and that her death was neither random nor meaningless. No, somehow, he says, somehow it made a difference in the invisible battle between good and evil. At the same time, much as we'd like God to give us a more detailed explanation, he says, for now we must wait in faith, content to believe that in life and in death, Jephthah's daughter belongs to God. Let me conclude. Faced with a troubling and puzzling Bible passage that raises more questions than it answers, I think it would have been an honest sermon were I to have raised these questions and simply said, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But I also believe that as part of God's people throughout these many centuries, we have been given more than that. If we believe, that the, if we believe the witness of the New Testament that the Holy Spirit has, in fact, been sent to the church and has begun to impart to us and among us the very mind of Christ himself, then we ought to expect something of that mind and spirit to emerge from 20 centuries of Christians living with the witness of Scripture. Indeed, John Calvin, my homeboy, said that the writings of the ancient church are God's gifts to the church. And he went on to say, we would be ingrates if we neglected them. So in grappling with our own questions about Jephthah's daughter and sharpened by the apt worries of feminist readers, we've turned this morning to consider that awkward space between our ancient Bible and our own day, a space that we usually just call history. Nothing we can possibly do can change the tragedy that befell Jephthah's daughter. But we can do two other things. We can remember her, and we can learn. Specifically, we can remember her part in a tragedy that should not have happened, but that nonetheless disclosed her virtue and courage and the solidarity of her friends. In remembering her, we also find ourselves by no means alone because we find ourselves in the company of writers and preachers throughout the church's history who have by no means neglected Jephthah's daughter. And together with them, we bear witness to the worth of her life and faith. And we can also learn lessons, lessons about the courage of daughters and sons, about how parents are to guard children and not place them at risk, and lessons about how the church at its best has inculcated and honored these same values. And then there are also lessons about God for our own faith, to this effect, that as hard as it is for us when God is silent, and there are those times when God is silent, and it is hard, Christians are still called to trust in God's watchful care and in the abiding love of Jesus, even when such care and love seem hidden to our eyes. 
The witness of the people of God through the ages is this, that we, like Jephthah's daughter, are far more hidden inside God's care than we can possibly know. By faith, then, we surely sense that our Savior is our safe haven and that it is our Savior who will receive our souls at the last. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.